Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There was great cause for celebration last week when the Supreme Court ruled that federal civil rights law protects gay, lesbian, and transgender workers. There's a shameful chapter in American history of the federal government's persecution of gays that began in the 1950s, the basis of a documentary, The Lavender Scare. We'll talk with the filmmaker later in the hour. Also in observance of Pride Month, a look back at the legacy of Broadway composer Jerry Herman, He wrote the music for Hello, Dolly, Mame, and La Cage aux Folles. First, it is a cruel act of vandalism when a work of art has been defaced. Artists defacing their own work is another matter. A COVID-19 prevention campaign, Big Facts, Small Acts, has enlisted the help of Atlanta artists for their grassroots effort targeted at black and brown communities. Sherry Scott is the founder, and she's with us now via Zoom. Sherry, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan. Oh, thank you for saying that. Please tell us how the Big Facts, Small Acts campaign was started. This was your idea. It was my idea, but it definitely was a group effort in bringing it together. And it really began with a group of Black women artists um, here in Atlanta. I came up with the idea. I live in Southwest Atlanta in a neighborhood called Sylvan Hills. And I went to my local Kroger, and it was very obvious to me while shopping, and this is mid to early March, that the message about COVID prevention and awareness wasn't really hitting our community. And I could tell because no one was wearing masks, no one was paying attention to the social distancing stickers on the floor, and there was no enforcement. And then the cashier who was checking me out burst into tears because she was just overwhelmed by being in this situation. And so I left that trip determined to do something about making sure that the message 
about wearing a mask and washing your hands and social distancing was getting out to the communities most impacted by COVID. So I gathered a bunch of girlfriends, we brainstormed, and we came up with a multimedia campaign, which was Big Facts, Small Acts. <laughs> Who decided it would be effective for mural artists to put masks on their original creations? Well, the, the amazing thing about Big Fact Small Acts is it truly has been a grassroots community effort. And one of, you know, we talk a lot about allyships. One of the allies in this campaign is a local ad agency called Chemistry. And Chemistry, because I'm friends with some of the guys who run it, when they saw what we were doing, they came up with ideas. And that was one of the ideas they came up with. They knew that I was good friends with Fabian Williams and you know, good friends with W as well, who are two of Atlanta's most iconic mural artists. And so the idea was let's ask them to cover up these murals so that there is a daily reminder in the communities being impacted that this is something that is real, that has a truly negative impact on our community, but is preventable if we just kind of cover our community and take care of each other. In addition to Fabian and W, who are some of the other artists or how many artists are participating? So right now we have four artists, Melissa Mitchell, who is a fantastic, just does amazing bright colors. We're gonna be covering one of her masks over in East Atlanta. And then we'll be, uh, there's an iconic mural of Jose Martinez from Atlanta United. We'll be covering that as well. And honestly, we put a call out if there's other artists in town who are interested in supporting the work. And then on a more grassroots level, a more community-based level, we did about 20 yard signs uh, that we put up around 30310 and 30315 in high traffic areas. So Fahamu Peku participated in that, Sean Foy, uh, Corey Davis, who owns City of Ink, uh, off of Edgewood participated in that, Tracy Morell, Angela Bartone. So all in all, we've had probably about 15 to 20 artists uh, in some way participate. We worked with Melissa Alexander, who goes by Phyllis Iller, to do some portraits with masks that we've been putting up on social. I mean, it's really been a artist-led community effort that went from idea to launch in really about three weeks tops, which I think is a great testimony to the power of collective movement and collective thought. Fantastic. And some of the more familiar murals such as? Fabian did Colin Kaepernick on Ralph Abernathy. He did Martin Luther King also on Ralph yes. Abernathy. Uh, his Bob Marley mural on the corner of Lee and Abernathy was another one. W's Fearless mural is one of the ones we're doing as well. It's fantastic. It is. And as I said, it's really, you know, it's the interesting thing is talking to the many of the artists that we were working with, you know, everyone was looking for some way to make sense of things and some way to do their part. And, you know, I was speaking to Tracy Morell, for example, and she was saying, you know, making the sign helped me get out of the funk and start thinking about how can I be more proactive. And I just think that speaks to the healing power of art on a personal level and also a community level. Indeed. What resources and information are offered on the social media pages of Big Facts, Small Acts? Absolutely. So on Instagram, which is Big Facts, Small Acts, ATL, 
in addition to just stats, up-to-date stats on how COVID is impacting uh, the black and brown communities, there's also tips on staying safe while protesting because the truth of the matter is we know people are out in the streets raising their voices and, and while 100% we want that, we want people to be safe because COVID is still here. So there's tips on how to protest safely. There's also tips on voting safely. I think we saw last Tuesday that, you know, particularly in the South side, the people were in line for hours and many of those people didn't have masks. So tips on, on how to vote safely. And then also on our website, there's resources. So there's local, national, um, state resources for people impacted either from health-wise, financially, vetted information as well, <laughs> which is key in these times. And then there's also information on what to do if you are sick or you think you might be sick. And, and there's Spanish language resources. The point of the matter is we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. The, the idea was to take the existing information that was out there and put it into a format and platforms that we knew our target audience would be able to engage with. Sherry, for those who may not be aware, would you talk about why the coronavirus is affecting Black and brown communities at a disproportionate rate to that of white communities? Absolutely. And, and the short answer is, you know, racism is systematic. We have higher rates of the underlying health conditions that make people particularly vulnerable to COVID. So heart disease, lung disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. And then economically, black and brown people are more likely to work those essential frontline jobs. So the exposure level is higher. And then also health insurance. So if I feel sick, I'm more likely to not seek out medical help. I'm also more likely to continue to go to work because I cannot afford to. And then, you know, some of it is the beautiful things about our, our culture. You know, we are multi-generational oftentimes. We're, you know, cultures that very much enjoy big family gatherings. You know, all these things that are very beautiful about who we are are also in some ways a contributing factor. What has been the response from protesters and admirers of the murals? What kind of comments have you heard? We've, uh, there was this beautiful video, um, and I wish I shouldn't have this gentleman's name, but if you go to our IG page, you can see it. Just a local community guy saw Fabian's murals and created a, 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 this beautiful tribute video to it. We've seen people honking uh, when we're out passing out masks, because again, that's, that's a key part of what we're trying to do in our second phase as we move beyond awareness to passing out masks and, and figuring that out. You know, people are grateful. You know, one of the things that we've done is our masks have a, have a message on them. You know, one of them is trying to, trying to survive while black. Um, we have another one that says, you know, don't shut up, cover up. So the truth is, particularly young people, you know, it's Atlanta, we're known for style. So, you know, if we can, <laughs> it's just the fact, it's just the fact, right? So, you know, that people are grateful that we're passing out masks that actually have a little flair to them, you know, opening up the conversation about wearing masks covering our community versus the man trying to tell you what to do. This is, no, we're, we're trying to protect ourselves and our community and, you know, join us. It's a small act. <laughs> Not so small. On the Big Fact Small Acts website, there is a place to donate. What do these donations fund? Absolutely. So right now, we are working on a partnership with Masks for the People, which is a group out of uh, the Bay Area that has put together a scalable system for distributing masks. And 
you know, we were kind of doing it on our own grassroots, but the truth of the matter is that's not, you know, community organizing in that way is not our strength. So we're hoping to raise 10 grand for Mass for the People, and that 10 grand will allow them to distribute 5,000 mask kits here in Atlanta. So the mask kits include masks and sanitizer. So that's the big push for now. And then two, we would love to continue to do more murals and more kind of outdoor experiential activations to keep people engaged. And so materials for that, but primarily what we're raising money for is, is masks. So that come August with the runoff and come November, when we start returning to sports, I just want people to have the option of wearing a mask if they want to. Sherry Scott, founder of Big Facts, Small Acts. You can find more information about the murals and their initiatives at bigfactsmallacts.org. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that firing a person on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is unlawful. This was a huge win for the LGBTQ community. There is shameful history connected to our government's persecution of gays, which forms the basis of the Lavender Scare, The documentary is the first to detail the campaign by the federal government in the 1950s to identify and fire all employees suspected of being homosexual. We'll revisit my 2017 conversation with the film's director, Josh Howard. He was joined by the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival's Chris Holland and out on film's Jim Farmer. Here, the director, Josh Howard, explains his inspiration for the documentary. Well, I uh, stumbled upon a book called The Lavender Scare. Uh, I had thought I knew about American history, about um, uh, the McCarthy era, But uh, I just happened to come across this book that told the story of the government's systematic effort that began in the 1950s and continued for decades to identify and remove uh, gay men and lesbians from the federal workforce. And it was just a fascinating story. And uh, the characters uh, who were described in the book were getting on in years, and I just wanted to preserve their their stories on film. And we should... And Josh's background is most impressive. I have to say it because he won't. He has 24 Emmy Awards to his credit. This man knows something about (laughs) producing and filmmaking. And I wondered why this was the first documentary on the Lavender Scare. Why do you think it hadn't been explored on film before? Well, it was also the first book written about the Lavender Scare. Terrific historian David Johnson began work in the 1990s uh, on this subject. Uh, It's a story that has never been told because while it was going on, there was really a conspiracy of silence on, on both sides. The gay men and lesbians who were being fired didn't want to talk about why they were 
driven out of their jobs because they were indeed in the closet and they wanted to keep their sexuality a secret because they you know, needed other jobs and homosexuality was not accepted in the 1950s. So they didn't talk about why they were fired. And the government, after an initial burst of publicity, uh, as this uh, systematic effort went on for really uh, several decades, the government didn't want to talk about how many people were getting fired, because the question would then be, well, why did you hire them in the first place? So neither side really discussed this. And it's not until David Johnson started his research. Uh, a lot of government documents had been newly declassified in the 1990s. He was the first person to actually put together uh, the overall picture of how, uh, how the government systematically went about this. One of the um, facts brought out in the film very effectively is that before the Lavender Scare, before the early 50s, it seems that openly gay people in the 1920s and 30s were at least discriminated against less, if not more, accepted by society. What was happening then? Well, I think that's such an interesting message of the film that uh, really the homophobia and discrimination of the 1950s was a direct backlash uh, against that earlier time when homosexuality was more accepted by society. You know, there was the you know, Great Depression in the 30s and World War II in the 40s, and people were you know, more focused on uh, more practical issues of living their lives than you know, worrying about how other people were, were li living theirs. And it was really in the 1950s that there was a conservative backlash against that. And um, before that conservative backlash in the early 50s, um, World War II broke out. What impact did that have on gay life? Jim? With Josh? Uh, absolutely. Um, it was well, one of the historians in the film uh, describes World War II as the most revolutionary thing that happened to gay men and lesbians. And the reason was that uh, uh, with the draft and people volunteering to serve, millions of uh, uh, you know, Americans were, were mobilized, and those who did enlist found themselves in same-sex environments and were able to, uh, in many cases, connect with other gay people for the first time in their lives. They'd come from small towns where you know, they were isolated, might have thought they were the only gay people, but being in the service gave them that opportunity. It also created uh, these, uh, you know, an uh, influx of people into metropolitan areas and uh, uh, created the opportunity to build gay communities in, in that way. I mean, that part of it was very heartening. Uh, you know, here, people just trying to serve their countries dutifully, and then also discovering others like themselves and minding their own business when not working. Well, you know, during World War II, the government needed uh, needed needed bodies, and the military did not go out of its way to, you know, throw out uh, uh, you know gay men and lesbians. They they wanted they wanted people to fight. It was only after the war that the government uh, and the military then began to weed out uh, homosexuals uh, with a vengeance. Mm. It didn't take long 
after this golden period of World War II for reactionary views to take hold, fomented by Senator Joe McCarthy's work. The campaign was beyond ruthless. I mean, it destroyed lives. It ended some lives. And one aspect of the film that I found especially haunting is the use of interviews with people who carried out these horrible attacks. Uh, FBI agents, State Department officers. And the use of language was so startling. Perverts is the acceptable term. I mean, in newspapers, perverts, I guess this all just reinforces how grateful I feel to have been born when I was born. (laughs) Not that things are so great now, but... mm. So these... This language, these horrid attacks were on people mostly who were dutifully serving their country. And then there were uh, the appeals to their co-workers and friends to do their patriotic duty, which seems harder for us to grasp now than I I guess it must have felt as a moral dilemma for them at the time. But how did the government connect the dots, if you will, um, from one sexual orientation to being a threat to national security? I mean, it's almost laughable. Well, uh, there was never any real evidence, but the theory was that gay people were in the closet and wanted to hide their sexuality, and uh, that would make them susceptible to blackmail by, by foreign government agents. The first part of that was actually true. Gay people did need to remain in the closet. Uh, uh, intimate acts between same-sex couples were illegal. Uh, throughout the country in those days. And so there was a very practical reason homosexuals didn't want to uh, disclose their sexuality. So the government was right about that. The second part never happened. There was never a single case uh, that the government could identify uh, of a gay man or lesbian uh, being blackmailed by a foreign government into into revealing secrets. The irony of the story is that they were being blackmailed, however, by their own government, because government agents would say to gay people who they had identified, give us the names of other gay people who you know, so we can go investigate them. And if you don't give us those names, then we're going to expose you. And so a lot of people, you know, some refused and stayed silent, but a lot of people did... uh, uh, submit to uh, to that pressure to reveal the names of uh, of uh, other people. Please tell us about Frank Kameny. Frank Kameny was uh, well; he's one of a kind. <laughs> uh, probably five thousand people had been fired by the government uh, and had gone quietly without any protest uh, before Frank Kameny came along. He was the first person to. Uh, fight back and resist his firing. Uh, he was uh, born in New York. He was educated at uh, Harvard University. He had a PhD in astronomy. Uh, this was at the in the early days of the space age when very few people were as well trained in that field as he was. And he was 
stubborn and he believed that he was right and he fought his dismissal and he fought it through administrative channels, uh, through the courts. He wrote his own brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he was turned down every step of the way. And at some point, he decided that political activism was was the way to make some progress in this area. And he really is now seen as the uh, the first person to uh, uh, really radicalize the the gay rights movement uh, years before Stonewall. Yeah, and tell us how he went about it. Well, uh, he was uh, Frank was responsible for organizing the uh, first pickets, the first gay rights pickets. Uh, uh, in, in the country, and they, he, it, it happened at the uh, at the at the White House, uh, and it was just his uh, personality and determination that attracted other people. And it's it's kind of the uh, you know the silver lining in a way to the story that it was the discrimination and oppression of the uh, uh, of, of the government actions that really created this uh, spark within the gay community that uh, you know, launched the early days of the, of the gay rights movement. But what he experienced was soul-crushing. I mean, would it have been soul-crushing for others, and, and was, but it just seemed to uh, motivate him all the more in terms of getting this before the courts, and I think— um, I, I don't think this is a spoiler alert. It, it, it's one of the great moments of the film um, when President Obama recognizes him in 2009 for his work on behalf of civil rights. Well, it was a remarkable moment for Frank and so symbolic for the movement. Uh, here was a guy who was thrown out of the government because he was gay and now, you know, it, he's being honored uh, uh, by the president. But, you know, you mentioned it could be a soul-crushing moment. Frank's soul could never be crushed, and it really took someone like this to be the first person to, to fight back. Frank was fond of saying that if he and society disagreed on an issue, he would give that issue careful second thought, he would consider society's opinion, and after that second thought, if he still felt he was right, then, in fact, he was right, and society was wrong. And, uh, you know, they better stay out of his way because he's going to fight for what he believed was right. And he certainly did that. Speaking of, uh, you know, the true scientific method, or, who knows, philosophical method that he wrote, it was interesting to me that in organizing that first picket line, outside the White House, um, that he required those marching to adhere to a dress code. Um, this was not a radical. This was not someone throwing bombs. This was someone who said, if you want to look like you're employable, then dress as though you're employable, according to their standards. Well, he was a combination of both. Uh, it, it took a radical to, uh, uh, to to pick it at that point and to come out as uh, as a gay man. But he also understood what the goal was, and uh, you know he also was pretty strict about things. And he would not let people pick it with him unless they were dressed appropriately. 
Uh, as the movement progressed uh, beyond Stonewall into the 1970s, uh, he went from uh, being seen as a radical to, by some people, seen as being too conservative mm-hmm. because he still was wearing suits and ties. Uh, but he continued uh, uh, fighting for gay rights uh, uh, th- throughout the rest of his life. Josh, with the FBI involvement, I wondered whether you had considered including anything in the film about J. Edgar Hoover or Roy Cohn, because these names didn't appear, did they? We did consider it. Uh, You know, we we, uh, really felt that uh, it was, it's an interesting sidelight to the story. And David Johnson, in his book, uh, explores that relationship. But in terms of the film, we really wanted to focus on uh, certainly the people who were fired, but also the government officials who were directly responsible for carrying out the investigations uh, and and the firings. I must um, mention that the film is a documentary, but it builds with such suspense that it feels a lot like a thriller. I mean, I kept hoping I was going to get through this gruesome (laughs) chapter to a a better ending. And the music is so effective. Would you talk about some of the other elements in the documentary, like the the photos and, and the use the editing is marvelous. Well, it was a it was a hard story to make into a film because there was very little, um, uh, you know, newsreel footage uh, of, of these actual uh, events. So we worked very hard at uh, gathering documents, still photos. Uh, we used some sketches at some point. Uh, had a very talented uh, editor and uh, motion design artist, Bruce Shaw who took these elements and I think was able to visualize uh, the story in in a way that's uh, engaging to the audience. That was Josh Howard, director of the documentary The Lavender Scare. He was joined by the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival's Chris Holland and Jim Farmer of Out on Film. In a moment, a tribute to the composer of Broadway's first musical to portray the intimacies of a gay relationship. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Shalom, shalom, you'll find shalom, the nicest greeting you know. It 
the name Jerry Herman, but it's likely you've heard some of his songs. Herman's scores for Broadway shows include Hello, Dolly, Mame, and La Cage Fall. The composer and lyricist died last December at the age of 88. Over the course of his career, he won two Tony Awards a Lifetime Achievement Honor from the Tonys, and a Kennedy Center Honor. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company joined us to discuss Herman's legacy and impact. He began with the similarities of Jerry Herman to his idol, Irving Berlin. More than anything, their work is simple, honest, optimistic, and touches the heart. And I think both did that so wonderfully and so successfully. That song that we heard at the top, Shalom, comes from Herman's first Broadway hit, the show Milk and Honey. I hear you have a a story about that. My parents took me to see it. I was eight years old, and I remember the legendary Molly Pecan. It was so beautiful, and even though it was 1961, um, Israel still felt very new, and and post-war optimism was so important. That show, Milk and Honey, was about Israel and the Israeli experience. And let's, b- before we talk about that show in the particular, let's just talk about how a young man gets a Broadway show. How did he even come to be able to write Milk and Honey? So Jerry Herman was born in the early 30s. He was born in sight, he joked about being born in sight of the Winter Garden, a famous Broadway theater. So he, he and his mom had good taste even then. <laughs> and he grew up in Jersey City. He had a natural ability with the piano early on. He had some lessons, but he was largely self-taught. And he fell in love with musicals upon seeing Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. He said, at a very impressionable age, I was taken to see Annie Get Your Gun, and I came home starry-eyed. I knew I had to have something to do with writing for the musical theater. The combination of the Irving Berlin songs and Ethel Merman was overpowering. And so here was Irving Berlin, his role model, his inspiration. And um, we should also point out that, like Berlin, Jerry Herman wrote his own lyrics as well as the music. He did. He he never thought of himself as a poet. It, It all came sort of at once. Music and words came together for him. During his youth, he was he was obsessed with mu- the musical theater. He loved all of the classic writers of the Great American Songbook. They've all entertained me, he said, and I've gotten something from all of them. But as we discussed, he said, Irving Berlin's simplicity has had the greatest influence on me. I think it. he hit the whole nation in the heart, and that's quite an accomplishment. And it wasn't just... Th- 
theater musicals that he loved. He also would go in Jersey City to the Lowe's Jersey City and and watch MGM musicals. And he said that that helped define a sense of glamour for him that he carried through the rest of his life. He went to the Parsons School of Design for a little bit uh, and then transferred to the University of Miami where he did a ton of theater, wrote a bunch of songs, came to New York, continued to write songs for cabarets and reviews and was constantly sort of pitching himself as the potential songwriter for a Broadway show. And uh, he, he was doing something at a club, and a producer walked up to the piano and said, I'm going to do a musical set in Israel. We're going to do it on Broadway, and I'd like to talk to you. And he said, I thought this really just doesn't happen except in <laughs> Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney films. But that's evidently how Milk and Honey was born. And he said he found himself at the a very tender age with a Broadway show. So now he has a Broadway show, and uh, he's kind of got a little bit of clout, and then he's kind of wondering about what his next thing is. Before the parade passes by, I'm gonna go and taste Saturday's highlight. Before the parade passes by, I'm gonna get some life back into my life. I'm ready to move out in front. I've had enough. Oh, Carol Channing. So at that tender age, after he had such success with writing the music and lyrics for Milk and Honey, a certain producer named David Merrick uh, was captivated by Herman's talent, and that led to, as many of you probably recognize, Carol Channing singing a number from Hello, Dolly. What You mentioned how it was like something out of a movie for Milk and Honey with, with Merrick. It was even more so. Absolutely. He was he he got him you know now he's a a broadway's composer he's getting meetings with producers so he gets a meeting with merrick who is evidently somewhat of a scary guy but merrick said yeah yeah you're talented clearly but i i don't think you're american enough to write this musical because it's based on thornton wilder material and he what did that mean american i'm not even sure but he protested (laughs) he said i wrote uh israeli operetta agreed but everything else i've written is as american as apple pie so uh merrick is a little bit skeptical but he does give herman the script Herman goes home, and he said he did something his agent and everybody else in show business would have urged him never to do. He wrote four songs on spec, meaning he wasn't hired to do it. He just did it to sort of show what he could do. So over the weekend, he writes four tunes, comes back into Merrick's office, says, here's what I've got. And Merrick is so wowed that he is quick and the stuff is good. He said, I know it sounds like a movie, but he said, evidently, kid, you've got the show. The song that the show spawned many successful songs. Let's hear probably the most famous. Well, hello. Look who's here. Dolly. 
This is Louis. Hello, Louis. Darling, it's so nice to have you back where you belong. I am so glad to be back. Are you looking swell? Thank you, Louis. Darling, I can tell. Does it show? Darling, <laughs> you still blowing, you still crowing, you still mm, going, going strong. I feel the room and the band one of okay mr lewis armstrong really liked that song and he saw something in it before anyone else did before anyone else did in fact before herman did herman thought it was a night it worked for the show but he never thought herman first of all believed that a good show should have what he called liftable tunes so while the musical theater was moving in a direction of being less about hits and being more about songs that serve the musical, he still believed in kind of that older generation's idea of you could do both. You could have a couple of what he called liftable tunes. He said, uh, I believe in a show song that can, you can carry home, that you can dance to, that can be recorded by Perry Como. So <laughs> he, he, he believed in it, but he certainly didn't think Hello, Dolly was going to be that number. He, and so then at a cast party, before the show's really even open, he heard Louis Armstrong's version of it and thought, wow, maybe I'm missing something. This is unbelievable. And they actually retitled the show Hello, Dolly, it wasn't titled that. Based on the strength of Louis Armstrong's single, it then supplanted the Beatles in 1964 as a number one hit. And the next year, there were over 70 recordings of that tune. Mind-blowing. And I remember when the song came out, because I used to listen to the Top Ten Countdown every Friday, and you know, radio was such that you heard Broadway shows and ballads alongside rock tunes. We weren't the fragmented, formatized universe we live in now in radio. Not everything was successful for Jerry Herman. After 17 years of flops and self-doubt, Herman came up with his last blockbuster La Cacho Full with a book by Harvey Firestein, no less. What was the impact of this show, Adam? The show was a huge success, and it it's really impressive. I, I believe it came out in 1983, so the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Certainly, Gay people were still heavily stigmatized. And here you have a huge hit Broadway show and arguably the first major show on Broadway that put a gay couple's romance at the center of it. And not in not it for not for comic effect, not to make fun of the gay couple, but to they were the protagonists. The show's full of heart. The critics as a general rule, thought it was a, a strong show, but one of the things they often would point out is the material was uh, it's controversial in the sense that uh, there hadn't it just hadn't been done before in that way. Uh, but the form of it was old school Broadway, glitz, glamour, and on top of that, uh, 
in in the end, it's a very wholesome show. F- Harvey Firestein says, you know, it's it's kind of a uh, in in some ways, it's about honor thy mother and they, thy father is what the the show is really about. Mm-hmm. And they they talked about the the color palette in the show being very wholesome, light blues and that sort of a thing. And uh, it it's it I think in a in a wonderful way had a this huge element of pride and ownership for the gay community as well. Uh, let's, if we could hear a little more mascara. Once again, I'm a little depressed by the tired old face that I see. Once again, it is time to be someone who's anyone other than me. With a rare combination of girlish excitement and manly restraint, I position my precious assortment of pencils and powders and paint. So whenever I feel that my place in the world is beginning to crash, I apply one great stroke of mascara to my rather limp upper lash. And I can cope again. Good God, there's hope again. When life is a real shit again, and my old sense of humor has up. Nothing that a little bit of eye makeup properly applied can't cure. One of the protagonists of the show is a drag performer, and there was an affinity that uh, Jerry Herman, who uh, felt immediately for the show, he said, I wrote a little more mascara before there was even a book. Even before I had my first meeting with Harvey Firestein, I got the idea of the audience seeing the transformation from a middle-aged man in a tatty bathrobe into a glamorous creature named Jaja. Neither the film nor the play gave the audience that. And he was so enchanted with the idea that he sat down and he wrote this song and a few minutes, I think it was 20 or 25 minutes, and evidently they didn't change a word of it from Mm -hmm. thenceforth. We talked about this spirit of optimism that he wanted theatergoers to feel. Um, the best of times, doesn't that capture it? I think so. The best of times is now What's left of summer but a faded rose The best of times is now As for tomorrow, well, who knows, who knows, who knows So hold this moment fast And live and love as hard as you know how And make this moment last because the best of times is now is now is now 
Evidently, when he wrote his autobiography, one of the reasons he did it was reporters and the press and critics felt that his constant optimism was somehow a put-on, that this, this no guy could be this happy and this buoyant. And uh, he said he wanted to explain that this was truly part of his DNA. And when asked if there was an um, if there was an element in all of his shows that was consistent, he said definitely yes, positivism. And then he went through and named all of the characters in his shows: Mame, Jaja, Dolly. They're all positive thinkers. They're all people who say the best of times is now, and he truly felt that. He also once said, to me, the powerful tune has always been the nub, the meat and potatoes of American theater. And we have to remember um, 1983 when La Full hit Broadway. Um, this is... After how many Sondheim hits, after Hair and a Chorus Line, and Broadway musicals were not of the Irving Berlin upbeat variety. They, they were far more complex. And he was sometimes dismissed by critics because of that. I think that's so, but the amount of skill and sophistication it takes to write a simple lyric, to write a simple and catchy tune, is so, it's so hard. I, and he, he put himself in very elite company to, to talk about his hero being Irving Berlin. And I think they both share that ability to capture this kind of, um, it's, it's almost a divine thing to be able to write something that everybody gets but is deceptively complicated, but it feels really true, really authentic, and really simple when you hear it. I, I would say that um, another there's that, that quiet revolution piece to Jerry Herman as well, to, to be able to make characters that you so fall in love with that you can talk about things that people hadn't up to that point talked about in that big of a pond. Um, in 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 a very perfect Jerry Herman was gay and uh, his his partner died from AIDS in the early 80s and to be able to mainstream gay life and do it in a way that was easy and comfortable for a lot of his audience to understand I think is a real coup hit one of the big hits from uh, Le Cage au Fall is called I Am What I Am and it's got this mixture of hurt, betrayal, but also tremendous pride, and that became a, a theme for the gay community. What I am, I am my own special creation. So, come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world. 
hiding. Life's not worth a damn till you can say, Hey world, I am what I am. I am what I am. I don't want praise. I don't want pity. I bang my own drum. Some think it's noise. I think it's pretty. And so what if I love each feather and each spangle? Why not try to see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout out loud, I am what I am. Oh, it's breathtaking. It is just magnificent and deserved to become an anthem. We should know Jerry Herman himself was HIV positive, diagnosed in 1985, but among those very fortunate early on to have had that cocktail of drugs that enabled him to live to the ripe age of 88 and not die of AIDS. Mm. Harvey Firestein, in a tweet after he passed away, said, Bravo. It was, and there's something about Jerry Herman, a life well lived, and I think deserving of that kind of ovation at the end. Just well done, sir. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company discussing the legacy of composer Jerry Herman. He passed away in December of 2019 at the age of 88. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with the Indigo Girls reflecting on their recent album, Look Long. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.